Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Barrett Takesian, who spent the past six years growing squash in Portland. Now, that's something that happens all across the United States. But what makes this story unique was the framework that was developed with a community-first approach. And while the name is straightforward, community squash, this may just be the recipe that the sport needs over the next decade to really help grow the sport. In this episode, we cover what is community squash and what are its core pillars, which was recently more widely unveiled through a masterful video to help grow awareness. Barrett shares the twists and turns that their program in Portland took in building their own squash center. He also shares how the Portland team tackles what could be tough conversations for children and adults of how we all might be a little bit different, but that's what could help unite us. An example of this is just using iceberg talks. We also talk about what the next decade of growth could look like for squash. We go through our typical quickfire questions where we learn more about our guest. And it was great sitting down with Barrett, who is a walking beacon of positivity. And we can't wait to see where the seeds of community squash take root all across the United States. If you're enjoying these podcasts, one thing that would really help is leaving a rating or a comment on social media could be quick, but makes a big difference. We really appreciate all the support and we look forward to doing more. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel. Because of its advanced LED lighting technology, these lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. We've got another great guest for you today. Like many people in the squash world, wears many hats, but actually throughout all of his roles, he has one hat he keeps on, which is called a community builder. And that is Barrett calling in today from Portland Community Squash. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. Love, uh, love being here with you today. Can't wait to talk squash and community centers, community building, whatever you've got ahead for us. Yeah, I'm excited. And full credit to you and your team that when I learned about this concept of community squash, it was one of those things I, I wish I had known earlier because I certainly would have been 
trumping it as early as possible. And I, I do it from the sidelines and as much as I can, but I really do think this will be just such a great model for so many people across the United States to take advantage of. And there's plenty of other models too. I just happen to really like this one too. But what I thought might be an interesting starting off point is what almost encapsulates your body of work to date and what you're doing in Portland was a video you just you guys just released called A Matter of Community. And there was a great line in there I loved, courts in the neighborhood for the neighborhood. And there's two parts because it, it, it's such an important message to come through and we're going to start off there. But I also do want to get into, I know your fingerprints were all over this in terms of really getting this from from concept to development. And we'll dig into that. But Talk about when you were bringing this together, what does this message mean for you? Yeah, the video was such an exciting project, but it started a little bit earlier than that. We just needed to document the work that we were doing. We were going into somewhat uncharted territory, and we were working um, with our local community to define this new model. And then when we teamed up with U.S. Squash about 18 months ago to really brand and define what community squash was, the first thing is we we wrote basically a franchise book. It's about a 20-page document. It's at usquash.org slash community. And it breaks up our model into three pillars. The first one is access, and you just referred to it, in the neighborhood, for the neighborhood. First thing we got to do is we've got to get all the kids and all the families from the city onto the court, having fun with the game, and build a really inclusive, energetic squash club. And we did that first at the Portland YMCA. And then when we had enough energy, we, we built our own facility, four courts and three classrooms and gyms, locker rooms, all that. So the video, the first part of the video captures that access pillar. And you can see people just showing up at the YMCA. Well, the next series of shots are in our new facility. And that's where equity gets introduced. So the first part says, you know, access, we grew the membership to 717 kids and families. And then the next shot, I'm in the yoga studio talking about equity. Well, equity is the next pillar of the model. And equity is, okay, great, you've got all these families in your facility. Well, you're gonna realize quickly that there's a lot of gaps in your city. Kids are looking for more academic support. Maybe they're looking for a mentor. Maybe it's access to private lessons or travel. So getting people onto the playing field is one thing. Equity is about leveling that playing field, making sure that families have the support they need so that they're gonna to continue to choose to spend their precious time at your facility. So the video starts to show shots of the yoga studio and our classrooms. And these are things that go beyond the sport. They're wraparound services that make our community more than just squash. And so you can see with the model and the video mirror each other there. And then the last piece is what we're really focused on in Portland right now is that integration piece. You can see the kids really coming together across lines of difference. But in the last shot at the barbecue, you start to see all the parents and members and families blending together and forming those relationships. And so in our model, it talks about creating time to talk about cultural differences and to be multi-generational and to form those long-term relationships. So integration is, is kind of highlighted in the video and also in the model. So those three pillars are what we always think about when we're when we're designing our strategic plan in Portland. And we've taken that to be the pillars for community squash across the country when we're working in new markets. So there's a lot of subtle messaging happening, but we also wanted to capture just the fun and energy of being in a community squash center. 
so happy to just work with everyone that was involved in that project to really capture the spirit of this movement. As you mentioned that we're bringing this across America and already working with, I think, close to 40 uh, different markets who have kind of raised their hands saying, this is great. I want to be part of it. With that franchise model you guys laid out, is that translating across or are you having to adapt locally? Like what is sort of rubber hitting road looking like in those different markets? Well, for us in Portland, our pillars were sequential. First, we had to focus on access, then equity, then integration. But in every city, there's different elements. So I'd say about half of the communities we're working with, they have an existing facility, sometimes even an existing program. And they're looking at just adding a couple more programs. Maybe it's a squash and education alliance program that's really focused on equity over the years. And now they want to address access and bring in the parents and the families and the siblings. Or maybe it's a little mom and pop squash club in the suburbs that wants to add a nonprofit component and maybe pick up you know, some academic support in the afternoon for some of the students that have been coming through. So maybe they want to add equity. And I think the theme of all of this is that we're stronger together And so bringing different types of programs under the same roof, that's the whole integration piece. And that's pretty uniform across. But that's when we're designing programs. But a lot of this, as you can imagine, is capacity building for organizations. We need a facility. We need need more leadership. We need better systems that are going to help us execute this. So part of it's the program design. Part of it is building an organization that has the capacity to execute at a higher level. So right now... We do some consulting services to help cities figure out the messaging and the vision. And then we'll do maybe another scope of work where we get into helping with the systems and the curriculum design, et cetera. So, yeah, you're right. Everybody's in a different place. But because of that, we have three different levels of community affiliates in this network that we've been building. You've got emerging community affiliates, which are, it could be just an outdoor court that's hosting a couple weekly You don't need to necessarily have mechanisms to be delivering financial aid and transportation. You just need to have a strategy to to address access to the game in your neighborhood. The next level up is a local affiliate, which is an organization the size of Portland Community Squash that's dedicating resources to financial aid and transportation assistance and wraparound services. And we have three or four local affiliates around the country. And then you have the regional affiliates, the, the spaces like the Spectre Center in Philadelphia and Metro Squash in Chicago that are big enough to host regional events and to champion the community squash model for their for their state or region. It's a really inclusive network we're building and it's all value add. We think we're stronger together. We're trying to build a really inclusive network and anyone that wants to champion these values, there's going to be a place for them in it. And Along those lines, it comes to mind that perhaps not everyone is as familiar with, with quote, the business model. So let's talk people through what that is, because I'm sure the question is, wait, is this for-profit? Is this non-profit? Where does this stand in for the community squash model? Well, first, I'll just say what the different use cases are. We're really looking for communities between 50 and 500 families. That's the kind of size community that this model has been working well with. And in terms of the venue itself, there needs to be some nonprofit component to the project. So maybe it is a commercial club, but is there a nonprofit entity that's sponsoring free memberships or clinics for students that are looking for access? So it could be a commercial facility with a nonprofit component. 
It could be a college facility where the assistant coach wants to start having some community programs. It could be a, a high school. It could be a squash and education alliance program. It could be an entire self-standing community squash center like the case of Portland Community Squash. It could be a YMCA. It can be an outdoor court. Basically, I think one of the lines in the video is, if you have a neighbor and you have a court, you have what it takes to get started. And we, we really want it to be that inclusive because we do see it being a pretty massive movement over the next 10 years. And I think you just kind of answered it, but it's worth spelling out of how you differentiate this from what a lot of people are familiar with. It was traditionally called the urban squash movement. Now it's the squash and education alliance movement. When someone says, well, what's the difference? How do you spell that out? Sure. Yeah, the community affiliate network is helping groups of people run a facility and turn a squash facility into a community center. So it's a community squash center is a really inclusive space that's bringing the people in. The Squash and Education Alliance is the gold standard for a youth development program. So within a community squash center, there might be five or six different programs. You might have box leagues and you know high school teams. And the Squash and Education Alliance program might be a program within a community squash center. So community squash is really about building more courts and making them inclusive to people of all backgrounds. Once those people are in the building, some of those kids are going to be looking for more than just squash. And for, for a lot of cities, they might think about running a Squash and Education Alliance program. So we need both. We need the SEA model to show us what a really well-run wraparound service program looks like. And we need the community affiliate network to help communities run inclusive squash centers. So they're complementary, but we both have our, our lanes, if you will, for now. Yeah. And that that's kind of what excited me about learning about this model coming out. And it, well, I heard about it first in like 2014, 2015, if, if that's, was mm -hmm. it early? Did it predate that or? That's, yeah, no, that's about right. Yeah. And there was a Jim Collins phrase that I love, who's a, a great business uh, author. It's not either or, it's and. Yeah. And this really just sort of encapsulated that to me. It was like, oh, we're very focused on either junior squash development for people of affluence or urban squash right here. And I was like, oh, okay, there's more of an umbrella access point and it can really encapsulate all of these programs that are so meaningful and what we care about. And I think it also introduces this element of the cross-pollination, right, of where we get to, and we were talking about this quickly offline, but it's those non-planned meetings that you get the opportunity to talk to someone that you wouldn't have otherwise talked to. Right. And that can really change your life. Yes. And that's what's, that squash is superpower. It's a great tool for building community. And, and we're just leaning into that. Right now in Portland Community Squash, there's probably about 60 people in the building right now. We have a total of 10 staff now running six different programs. And in the building at this moment, you've got members in the weight room. Some of those are subsidized members. Some of those are full pay members. We have our high school teams training out there. We have Rally Portland also playing right now, which is our Squash and Education Alliance program. You've got students in our yoga studio doing yoga this afternoon. So all these programs, they're so complimentary. And that's really the art behind designing your squash center. It's what's the menu of programs and how are you going to deliver programs that are going to retain families over a long time horizon? Squash has a famous stat where 
if the average gym maintains a member for about 18 months and a squash member sticks with their squash club for an average of six years. And I think that's lifetime fitness. They, the reason lifetime fitness started building a bunch of squash facilities is the stickiness that squash can provide with a family. And the reason that's so important to us, having different programs that create that stickiness with a family is because it takes about 20 hours to form trust with someone, 60 hours to form a friendship, and 200 hours to form a lifelong friendship. So our whole mission at Portland Community Squash is to put kids and families in spaces together for 200 hours so that they can have those lifelong relationships. And and that's data from the University of Kansas that did that study. And the last little study I'll share with you is Dunbar's number. He was you know, a famous social scientist and Dunbar's number is the amount of relationships that we can really have with one another. And that number for most of us is somewhere between 100 and 300. But the reason we cap our model around 500 families is because squash in particular is extremely powerful when everyone's on that first name basis. And I think many of us that play the game have that experience of going in to our local squash court and, and having someone that knows us. But that alone is, is a really powerful part of the mission as well. Thanks for those stats because I'm I'm kind of a uh, I love those nerd out and that kind of stuff. I had heard a different stat, probably older. This is mid two thousands. Was the average gyms were in Pilates studios were at the like the thirty percent retention mm-hmm. versus racket sports and facilities were in the ninetieth percentile, mm-hmm. which just really highlights, especially when you're you're looking at organizations that are in the membership game or trying to retain people. Yeah, you know that really highlights to your point about racket sports just offers something different. And mm-hmm. I think what your story highlights is the community building that goes on behind racket sports, right? Like that's the delta of those percentages. Yeah. People always ask me why squash. And I say, it doesn't have to be squash, but squash just happens to work really well. And I think it's, it's for those points we just spoke about. But the way we're trying to position this community squash movement, we're not trying to do it in a silo. We're trying to inspire sports and arts-based programs all across the country. So yes, we're working at U.S. Squash, but we're also working with our partners at the After School Alliance. We're working with partners at the Brookings Institution, Laria Sport for Good Foundation, the Sport for Development Journal, which is the only peer-reviewed journal in in sports-based development. So we're not going at this alone. This is a massive story about building community spaces across our country. A, as we emerge from COVID and people are calling for more inclusive spaces. And yeah, I don't even remember B, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it comes back, we can That's always. Enough. It's going to be. Yeah, it, be a, a is so powerful. We don't even need B. That's right. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about Portland Community Squash and how you guys got to where you are today. And I'm excited Mm-hmm. But it's not without uh, the reason why this reward is what's at the end, but because of the trials and tribulations you go through along the way. And I'd love to hear a little bit about some of those trials and tribulations of where you guys went through, because it's it's easy to look at where your success is now, but there's a, a road there and I want people to be ready for it and rally their community behind it. So share a little bit of your story. Well, the trials and Tribulations, I suppose, in their own right, build community because the first thing you need to start with is human capital. In our case in Portland, we had a steering committee. I was 22 years old. There were nine other people in the room. 
all, all with this goal of, of building some type of community organization. And little did we know that, you know, it would take us seven different sites before we found our location. And we were going to take us five years of running little community clinics at the YMCA before we had enough momentum to go into our own space. And the millions of dollars that we'd raise along the way. And there's probably 156 students in our program right now, but I've probably worked with about 800 and 900 students on our courts over the years. So it can be as big as you want it to be, but I will say it started with just a couple, it started with an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper at the YMCA with volunteers needed, sign your name if you're willing to do a quick background check and start volunteering it at, you know, we had one junior clinic a week and one adult beginner clinic a week. And that's it. We ran those clinics. We were building the community. And that could have been enough. But it was so much fun that we decided to go the next step. And we, we added box leagues and winter leagues. And we printed shirts. Then we started doing some demos at the local schools. And kids started coming through. We bought a boom box. And the music took the program to another level. And more kids started showing up. And then eventually we had enough strength to buy and develop our own site. We're on an acre of land. We have a 13,000 foot community center that's about to expand. So we've just done such a great job. We have 15 committees, 83 people. All the expertise we would ever need is already within our community. Our architect is from our community, our builder, the accountants. You know, as you build that human capital, you build your capacity to do more and more cool things. So I, I can dig into any of the difficult parts along the way, but for people that are thinking about getting involved in this, just start with the mountain that's in front of you. Maybe that's just showing up once a week for a clinic and start there. But when you get to the top of that mountain, you can always see the next mountain ahead of you, right? And my motif and our community has always said a little bit stronger every day. And we didn't stop saying that during COVID as well. And rather than backing down, we doubled down. And we are a much stronger organization than we went into COVID because we kept building uh, along the way. Well, when you said going back to your seven different site selections, what period of time was that? How long did that take? 2014 to 2016. We looked, we took seven different projects to full plants. Yeah. Wow. And I love the stories, but I'll let you tell it of where you, because you guys are housed in what was a synagogue? Is it still? It, no, it's no longer. It's no longer was a synagogue, but Portland Community Squash wasn't the only one bidding for this piece of land. And I think this is why it's so important to to almost lead with mission first and make that loud and proud and, you know, tell the story of signing that deal. Yeah. When I, when I work with new communities, we always talk about location, leadership, and money. Those are the three ingredients to, to create an you know, a new facility, which a lot of communities are looking to do. For us, the location piece was was a hurdle. Leadership, not so much. We had a lot of dedicated people. The money was going to be a hurdle for us as well. But our first site was going to be with the bowling alley. And we actually, that project fell through probably a week before we broke ground. So I'd been commuting three hours in the car every day to learn from Greg Zaff down at Squash Busters how to create one of these community organizations. And I got up to Portland. I was all ready to go on this project and it fell through. And then when we found the, 
the synagogue, it was, you're right, it was under contract. It was going to be our first attempt to buy and develop our own site. So it, rather than $500,000 of capital, we needed to come up with $1.5 million of capital, which seemed insurmountable. But we signed a purchase and sale agreement with $200,000 to the organization's name, knowing that in three months, we needed to be able to close on a million-dollar building and pay $500,000 to the, the builders. And so, yeah, we bought out. The, uh, it was under contract with someone that was going to do some housing on the site, but the congregation really wanted to stay as a community amenity. So we worked it out to buy out that contract. We went under contract with the congregation, went back and forth, really focused on how we would transition the space from strength to strength. Meanwhile, we, you know, we found a couple leaks and exposed wires and whatnot to push back the closing date a few times to give us time to raise the money. And then we closed October 2016, went right into 100 days of construction, and we had to open by that next January. So 100 days later, we needed to be open or we would have missed the squash season and we would have gone bankrupt immediately. So we got the construction down. We had kids and families painting hallways, the court builders bringing the courts in. And then on January 10th, 2017, we got our occupancy permit. We had a school bus show up that day, and we've had kids and families in the building seven days a week for the last five years. And yeah, we we, we don't shut down. Maybe maybe two or three times a year, but that's it. Well, the the common story in how any successful project has come to light comes with those twists and turns, and it's easy, I think, in retrospect, to kind of share where these were. But the amount of unknowns going forward is is a lot. And just know that anyone is, is um, that's common and that's to be expected and there will be turbulence, but it's really to your point of building the right team that can help do that together. And so it's not just lying on the shoulders of any one person. Mm-hmm. I would say just the last point on that, I'm not the b- best developer <laughs> in your community, but I will say that the developers that we're working with when we're trying to identify a site They've got irons in the fire, multiple irons in the fire about who their tenants are going to be. And they make a decision last minute. Hopefully it goes your way. But if you're on the tenant side and you're trying to build some squash courts, it's important that you also have irons in the fire because you need, you need options. So just because something looks like a sure thing, you know, it's good to have three or four opportunities going at the same time. A hundred percent. Yeah. Running multiple concurrent strategies. It's, it's the right thing to do. Well, going to the, the doors are open, your program's up and running. I always love hearing, especially from someone like yourself, who's as close to the, been leading the program. What was, what's a story or an example of where you've built all, everything, you put so much work in, but then what's the story or moment that you've seen where this is why we do it. This is this is how we're making a difference. And what's a story that would highlight that for you? Well, you know, every day, the reason I stay, the reason I am so loyal to staying in Portland, even while trying to help build out some of these national coalitions are because I run on the fuel of the energy in this building every day. But I just saw a student I hadn't seen for a while because they were playing soccer this fall. And, you know, just getting to say hi to that person definitely gave me some energy to tackle this afternoon and all the work I've got ahead of me tonight. 
And I don't know, just in the last day, we just started our elementary school program back up. And at the end of middle school practice, the kids have been here for three hours. They went through squash, wellness, and academics. And then elementary school practice is coming in. And then to ask the kids in the circle who wants to volunteer at elementary school practice and every hand goes up. And then you've got 24 new elementary school kids on the courts and our middle schoolers are hanging out after practice to teach the next generation. Or, you know, I'm leaving the club late last night and one of our students is on the couch and just finished up academics and there's chatting with a member and I just overhear her talking about her aspirations to learn more about law school and how she wants to be an immigration lawyer. And just for her to have the confidence to be able to speak up and, and voice that to another adult in the community. It's when it goes beyond the staff, like any staff can deliver curriculum, but when peers are delivering curriculum to peers and when youth are speaking up and forming relationships with adults under their own will, that's when community squash is just at its finest. And I almost feel like my dream, and we're going to build this cafe here as part of PCS 2.0, but I, I just want to sit down and after 10 years of hard work, I just want to sit down and have a cup of tea, frankly, and just like watch, watch the community go and just, just let it run. And to feel like a space where the whole city feels welcome and feels like it's a second home. I know it sounds romantic, but in the last couple of years, people have just talked about how divided our country is. And being in this building, we just, that's not the reality I see. I just see really loving, caring people and kids enjoying each other's company and helping each other through hardships and celebrating the good times together. It's all cliche, but the reality is we don't have enough spaces like this. So I really moved every day. That's, that's, why, that's why I'm so fiercely loyal to this place. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. That vision is certainly uh, heading home in your backyard. And I've heard you speak about the number of different languages you have as well as a different level of diversity you have, which I think we can imagine is... It's just amazing that, that you can all learn from each other and can be a really great place. I, 
I can also imagine that sometimes that doesn't always work yeah. and there are challenges and that's why we do need the staff or we need other people. Mm-hmm. And I'd wonder what is your approach? What is your, the Portland community squash approach to that when they see people not getting along or they're having challenges? Yeah. Like, how do you work through that? Great question. The first page in the model is, is around that access piece. It's making sure that you build a representative community of your local neighborhood and Every community needs to wrestle with what does cultural diversity look like? Culture is really the groups that we identify with growing up. And it could be national origin, it could be language, it could be religion, race, educational attainment. So those things look different in every city. You know, rural Vermont celebrates cultural diversity in a different way than we do in Portland, Maine. In Portland, Maine, the story that's really incredible in our city is, is the national origin we have, in our program, we have kids from 26 different countries of origin, 17 different languages. It's a lot of first and second generation families here in Portland. And so in order to bring those families together, we have a series of conversations called Iceberg Talks. We do it with mm. staff. We do it with the members. We do it with the kids. We do it with the board. We do it with our committees. And Iceberg Talks are taking one very specific question as an entry point to talk about how does our cultural identity impact that topic. So it could be the holidays that you celebrate. And we have a culture wheel up on the board when we have these conversations. And people pull from, you know, how their national origin or their language or their gender identity impacted that particular conversation. And we start with easy, objective culture, the top of the iceberg. And we teach people how to talk about difference. And the reason talking about difference is so important is because if, if we don't create the space to talk about difference, we go into a minimization orientation, which basically means we focus just on how we're the same, which sounds great, but ultimately the dominant cultures in the room typically set the policies and the culture of the space. Whereas you know, creating space to have these conversations really builds trust and awareness and and every time we have one of these conversations it changes the way we think about you know our policies and procedures and the culture of our space so we start with the top and then we move into subjective culture which might be their beliefs and attitudes things that you can't see so much on the surface so concepts of time concepts of friendship what makes me feel welcome when i walk into a space so the more conversations we have on the other side, first of all, everyone that walks out of those conversations is closer to the people in the room than when they started. So a lot of trust is being built and a lot of multicultural understanding is starting to form. But it's, you know, like all things, good things take time. So it's really a four or five year strategy before we feel like we've got great traction with the adult community. I think our youth are really crushing these conversations right now. And yeah, so it's it's all very much intentional. And then in terms of protecting the culture of our space, we, we do have community norms that we all agree to respect effort and positivity. Those are the values. Those are what we hold our students, our staff, our members all to the same values. So when the respect or the effort or the positivity is not there, it's usually an indication that that student or community member is not happy in the space. And maybe they're looking for another program. Maybe they are trying to get something off their chest, but you know, we have rep check-ins and behavior interventions and things like that, just to make sure that we can protect the culture that we're building. When you're running one of these iceberg talks, how long does that take? And what's a good group size to have one of those talks with? 
Yeah, it, well, over the last two years, they've mostly been on Zoom. So six to eight people is a good number. And if you have more than that, you can break into breakout rooms. But usually 30 minutes to an hour. And we, we do one once a week in our staff meeting. And then we have them available to our kids and to our adult community about once a month. And so this will be a, a regular ongoing practice. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, forever. Yeah. And so what is an example, some of the, the things you just listed out, like if, I, if I've already met you, yeah, and I keep hearing about your holiday, like what are some of the other questions yeah. that you can ask about? Well, the reason we call them iceberg talks is because if you want some good topics to talk about, just Google the culture iceberg. Okay. It's a thing. So, culture iceberg? Yeah. Objective culture is what's above the waterline, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the holidays you celebrate, the language you speak. And then below the iceberg is most of the stuff, gender roles in the household, yeah, concepts of cleanliness. You know, all these are like different attitudes and beliefs that we learned from a group at one point or another. And they're super interesting to get into, but you need to have trust established before you get into some of the more personal topics. One conversation that really struck me was how does your cultural identity impact your relationship with authority? And to talk to people on our, we have a pretty multicultural staff here. And to hear some people on their staff saying, you know, if something was troubling me, I would never walk into your office because, you know, I was just raised in my household not to question authority. Like just to hear that and to be operating with my own bias for years that if something's wrong, someone will come to me and just realize, wow, that was like an assumption, a really damaging assumption that I've just been making for years. And if we didn't have the opportunity to have this conversation, I wouldn't have been able to grow as a leader. So, I mean, that one's, that was one that really impacted me. You, you can get creative, but what I would say is, yeah. you know, we've, we've read a lot the social justice movement asked all of us to do better. But for us, it was too much to tackle 400 years of race theory in, in an hour training. So we've been using really small accessible entry points to talk about really important topics. It's been work for our community. And I know the Bowdoin Swash team has used some of, of the curriculum we've been developing here to have some conversations with their team as well. Is it the only way to do it? Absolutely not. It's just something that's been working for us on the ground. Well, before I move on to the the quick fire section, I'd like to look outward a little bit about what the next 10 years looks like. And I'd like to hear what your optimistic outlook is. And then what are some of the hurdles that you think will stop us getting there that we need to rally behind as a community? Sure. I'll just talk from my own perspective because I have a North Star that keeps me on mission every day. And that North Star is something that I, I helped define, or I, you know, I worked to define a few years ago. It's contributed to the success of a thousand families here in Portland just by continuing to advocate for more families and more opportunities in my city and to help contribute to the success of a thousand community centers across the United States. And when U.S. Squash said, this is something that we want to help, we want to champion, I don't believe in people running out, you know, on the battlefield alone to champion these ideas. I believe in institutions aligning themselves with, with movements and 
And so when U.S. Squash said they wanted to be the institution that's really going to oversee community squash, I was really excited to, to align a lot of my work and aspirations with the team there at U.S. Squash. And they're just doing an amazing job with the Spectre Center. And it, community squash isn't just one program within U.S. Squash. It's touching everything. Yeah, the tournament staff, the club locker team is really involved with how does the technology facilitate this movement, the messaging, everyone on staff has gotten extremely good at doing the messaging for the movement as well. So within Squash, I'd love to see us over the next 10 years build that network to say 100 programs. But selfishly, if, you know, just speaking as Barrett Takesian right now, I'm also, I'm not just yelling and creating a scene with US Squash. I'm also gonna be asking other sports and arts-based coalitions to do more as well and to align with the work we're doing at U.S. Squash because I, I do think it's a collective movement and it's going to require some public policy work as well. So that's, that's my goal for who knows how many years that'll take to, to really see this movement catch fire, but a um, little bit stronger each day, right? And the hurdles... Well, it's interesting. Let's go back 100 years. The YMCA started a, a little movement, well, I guess 150 years ago. And they've really dominated the community center space in this country. But quickly, they realized that they didn't have, they, they, they were great. The church especially was great at training people to be ministers and priests and whatnot, right? So they had a whole way to develop leaders within the church but they didn't have a way to develop people to run the community centers and the YMCAs. So recently I learned that nonprofit management as, as a field of study was created in part by the YMCA to train people how to run community centers. That's where nonprofit management came from. And I do see the, the labor and the leadership being the most difficult so it's inspiring young people to think of community building as a job title. You know, that it's, it's not something that gets advertised to us as millennials or Gen Z very often, but both you and I have taken the path and we know how rewarding it can be. So it's just, you know, building these movements, you have to be good at everything. You have to document everything. You have to align with academic partners. You need national coalitions. But I do see leadership being probably the toughest. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting with leadership is people always look that that's at the top and sometimes don't look that like you can be a leader, right? And it doesn't mean that you are the leader of a massive organization, but just as, as you know, you and some other people, like you just put your hand up. And it's like, I think showing up is really important <laughs> and continuing to show up. And that commitment alone defines you as a leader by well north of 50 or 60 percent so i think it's important there and to touch on another part there i think the success really is that coalition building and it needs to be you know i think we the interesting thing is we still have ways to go i think even just within the squash community to really get them more people understanding what this movement is of where it can go but there's also we got to reach outside. So that's the arts, like you said, the sports, the wellness factor. I mean, that is ultimately the underbelly of what we're doing is we're improving people's lives, which is well-being. And it just happens to be through squash. 
Well, I'd like to switch into the quick fire where we get to know you a little bit differently. So I'll start off pretty easy. Do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Oh boy. Is it bad that I'm going to say the most recent James Bond? Did you see it? <laughs> I did see it. I just thought it was, I just thought it was beautifully shot. It was in, I love the salsa dance and the first scenes are in Cuba and it's, you know, just, just a stunning setting. And then it's in Norway and you've got Land Rovers like flying off cliffs and whatever the the movie the movie was stunning got me a little bit you know i loved it what can i say i'm, I'm a, a huge bond. james bond fan and i i do actually do you have a favorite are you do you like the james bond series in general or just i'm a daniel i i, I mean i think the daniel craig bonds were were my favorite so yeah i'm i'm definitely partial to that uh at, at first i wasn't mm-hmm. well, i mean i really like casino royale but mm-hmm. I, probably, I like Sky. The old DB5 oh, yeah. came out. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. The question is, what gets you fired up? And this can be either something in Squash World or obviously not. And it can be both either negative emotion or positive emotion. You can pick and choose. But what gets Barrett fired up? What gets me fired up? Well, when I'm not on the Squash Board, I think my two favorite things, I love to dance. I just, I just mentioned that. So... When I go to a city, I, I usually try to find a salsa band and a squash court. And I also, I love jazz too. I play the sax. For as long as I've played that instrument, I should be so much better than I am. But at this point, I've just labeled myself a music appreciator. So I think that's where the dancing and, and playing a little bit of jazz once in a while comes in. So in this scenario, you're going to give a TED talk. So it's going to be Barrett's TED talk. Mm-hmm. And now the challenge here for you is it can't be about anything that is widely known about you. Mm. And you could also hypothetically go like, okay, well, there's something you've been dying to go explore and learn. And then that's what you would share. But so what would be your TED talk? Oh man. If I had to learn about something and study it myself, I'm thinking big here, but I just, I just love to imagine, I want to know what the economy looks like in a hundred years because income inequality and a lot of our traditional economic systems are clearly going through reform right now. And I'm always trying to anticipate what the landscape's going to look like and how these community centers are going to fit, which sectors they fit within private sector, public sector, nonprofit. So I'd love to do some research, and I'm sure there's some good economic thought out there about where the world will be 100 years from now. I'm fascinated. So so futuristic. Yeah, I would share in that curiosity, and there's, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, but it's exponential thinking, and it just like humans were so bad at exponential thinking. Mm. (laughs) And so it's interesting, all these experts at the time, right, what we're getting wrong versus what we get right. And uh, what's the expression? It's like, well, I believe 50% of this is probably wrong. I just don't know which part. Exactly. (laughs) Well, to close out this interview, we always kind of ask, is there a book and or podcast that you um, love and would recommend? Yeah, I got to plug. Fiona Hill has been our champion in DC at the Brookings Institution. And she just wrote a book called there's nothing for you here, finding opportunity in the 21st century. 
And in her most recent podcast, she really plugged the community swash movement as being a silver lining of um, a community effort happening in this country. So anyway, I'm really enjoying her book right now. And she's been a great friend to community centers across the country and to squash, uh, which is not a sport that she plays. How did that relationship come together? Someone in our community named a scholarship after her. and We wrote to her and let her know what was going on here. And she was just publishing her book. And her book was really raising awareness of the importance of, of bringing community spaces into our cities and towns. So it just, the timing, timing was excellent. And, and we've done a lot of research with the Brookings Institution since then. Great. Well, I want to thank you for your time and everything that you're doing locally as well as helping this movement go national. Any last words before we uh, shut off the mics? No, just I, I would just there people at uh, uswash.org slash community. And you can see the community affiliates that have already joined the model, the video, and all the best practices that go into running our organization are also in the model as well. We've documented every system from HR to program design to development. It's all open source and documented. We just want to just want to see more and more programs succeed around the country. So have fun if this is something that interests you and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Great. Well, thanks for your time, Barrett. Thanks, Connor. Be well. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.